Um, what, what do they say? Where two or three reform people are gathered, there are three or four denominations <laughs> in their midst or something? Where two or three reform <laughs> folks are gathered, they'll fight over worship. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 106, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. J. Mark Beach, Reverend Andrew Compton, and Dr. Glenn Clary wrap up the conversation on worship as they seek to address some common questions and answers related to worship, such as, what is the regulative principle of worship? What about instruments? Instruments. And is Zoom or live stream worship really worship? We've been talking about worship, and uh, we thought we'd, we'd spend this final episode just kind of throwing out a couple of, of questions and, and thinking through um, how we might answer uh, some of these as they relate to worship. Uh, we could probably spend 20 different episodes, you know, discussing questions, but time is what it is. But let's start with this. Um, gentlemen, we hear this word, the regulative principle of worship. What is the regulative principle of worship? And and I mean, how is that helpful? Uh, how might it be misused? Uh, what, what, do we, what do we do with the regulative principle of worship? The regulative principle of worship is, according to my understanding of it, the, the phrase, the term itself is of more recent vintage. However, the concept that goes back deep in the roots of Reformed uh, worship and liturgy, the principle of having the worship we offer to God be in accord with Scripture the way that has come to be played out in a popular level is that the Reformed regulative principle of worship declares that all is forbidden in worship that is not uh, directly commanded in Scripture, and by the, that in opposition to those who would argue that all is permitted in worship that is not directly forbidden in Scripture— I'm not sure uh, that Anglicans or Lutherans and Roman Catholics who would be the target of that jibe, if you will, that they permit any and everything that's not directly forbidden in Scripture. And by the same token, that we only do in our worship uh, those things directly commanded, and we absolutely don't do anything in our worship that uh, isn't directly commanded, and therefore everything else is forbidden. The, the, in other words, the popular notion of this as it's played out in the blogosphere world and the like is quite <laughs> unhelpful. More helpful, I think, is to argue that it's our passion and desire to do all things according to the Word of God, and now when you come to sacred worship, corporate worship at that, to worship in accord with Scripture, which means like any... Thing else in the Christian life, you have to look at biblical texts responsibly. You have to look at them within the history of Revelation, their place and function within a particular time, and how that applies and how it reached fulfillment in Christ and how the New Testament church performed worship. One of the easiest ways you get at this pre-Westminster, because the Westminster Standard certainly dealt with this issue more directly and new, with more nuance and in the sort of polemics they were engaged in 
offer, in some respects, a more fulsome answer. But already in the Heidelberg Catechism, in response to the Second Commandment, uh, part of the answer is we're not to worship God in any other way than he's commanded in his word. Well, and that's a rudimentary regulative principle of worship. What's debated is, okay, but what has God commanded in his word? It's also reflected, say, in the Belgic Confession, where in Article 32, we're told that uh, we re- we confess that we reject all human inventions, all laws which man may introduce into the worship of God, thereby to bind and compel the conscience in any manner whatsoever. The, the early Reformed confessions used this word worship or service of God, both corporately in the liturgy with reference to that, but also in the wider application of living before God and service to God. The second Helvetic Confession uh, likewise addresses this in Article 27. Uh, It concludes that a few moderate and simple rites that are not contrary to the Word of God are sufficient for the godly. If different rites are found in churches, No one should think that, for this reason, the churches disagree. Uh, But when you get to the Westminster uh, Standards, there you find, uh, for example, in chapter 20, uh, a desire that our worship conform to the Word of God. God alone is the Lord of conscience. It talks about it uh, indirectly through liberty of conscience in which it it also makes the point that we're not subject to the doctrines and commandments of men or anything that's contrary to God's word. And in matters of faith and worship, this applies as well, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands, that is, commands of men, out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. So the regulative principle of worship doesn't, it's not a magic wand. We still have to exegete the Bible and determine from the Bible the elements of worship, the dignity and decorum of worship, the good order of worship. The, the priority of elements in worship. And that, that's actually, if I can interrupt, that's actually the, one of those key terms. You know, what are in fact the elements of worship that are, require that scriptural, scriptural warrant vis-a-vis what are circumstances that can tolerate a wide variety of things, but they're circumstances, they're things that are in place that enable the elements to take place. For example, you know, I don't see anywhere in scripture that commands me to sing out of a uh, out of a book and to pick up a songbook but we're not barred from using songbooks because we know that that actually helps us in in this portion of these elements of worship right are, you can think of all kinds of examples like that but are you banned from the big screen ooh getting into technology <laughs> questions now no i'm just i'm just being provocative well you know I think we should get to that question, but just sure. so that we get some of the Westminster standards on the table, um, in chapter 21 of the Confession of Faith, it says that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself, and that in his revealed—it shows us his revealed will. We need—in other words, go to the Word, worship according to the word, not our own imaginations and devices, and do the words of Westminster, we're not to worship in any other way, not prescribed 
in Holy Scripture. Once again, that is, there you have the regulative principle of worship. Let's worship God as prescribed by Holy Scripture. So that the shorter catechism says we're not to worship God in any other way, not appointed in his word and the like. So I think that adequately shows us what we're talking about when we talk about the regular principle of worship. Now, as for the elements question, perhaps uh, Glenn would like to take the ball here and talk about those regular, those biblically normative elements of worship. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. Um, so you're making a distinction between elements and circumstances, and I think uh, that's a very common distinction to make within Reformed theology. Um, circumstances, of course, is used in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, chapter 1, paragraph 6, when it talks about some circumstances concerning the worship of God common to human actions and societies, which were to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. So you have elements elements and circumstances. Uh, James Bannerman says that an element is insacris, a circumstance is circusacra. In other words, an element is something that in itself is sacred. It is an act that in and of itself is sacred. But a circumstance is something that surrounds that sacred act that facilitates its performance, so it helps us to perform it. So, for example, uh, singing praises to God would be an element of worship, and singing, um, you know, uh, singing by means of using a hymnal, so the use of a hymnal, which would facilitate the act of congregational singing, would be a circumstance of worship. So there's, you know, one example of how to distinguish between elements and circumstances uh, there are two other words that I think that are used uh, liturgically, which are helpful, and that is forms and rubrics. So you have elements, things that in themselves are acts of worship, like the reading of Scripture, preaching of Scripture, singing praise to God and prayer, the sacraments. Then you have circumstances, that is the circumstances that surround those acts of worship, which facilitate their um, performance. And then you have forms, uh, which refer to the content of an element. So prayer would be an element of worship, and the Lord's Prayer would be an example of a form of prayer. And then you have rubrics. Uh, Rubrics are, do we stand uh, for prayer, sit for prayer, bow our heads, kneel, or something like that. So you have elements, circumstances, forms, and rubrics. And I think it's very, very helpful uh, to point out that the regulative principle of worship, which Dr. Beach, you know, set out very clearly for us, regulates the elements of worship. It does not regulate the circumstances of worship. And paragraph six of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, makes that very clear. But nor does the regulative principle of worship regulate the forms and rubrics of worship either. So the regulative principle regulates the elements of worship. Now, I think this, you know, to... Uh, bring up another uh, disputed point uh, here. I think this is helpful when it comes to the argument regarding exclusive psalmody. Hmm. There are some people who argue the Covenanter Presbyterians, for example, just one group, not the only, but there are some people who would argue that the regulative principle of worship, when followed consistently, would mean that we were an exclusive psalmodist church. 
because only the psalms are prescribed. The singing of the psalms is the only thing that's prescribed, but not human, uh, you know, produced uh, hymns, not inspired uh, hymnody. Well, see, I think that there's a fundamental error in that argument, and the error is that it's applying to it's applying the regulative principle of worship to the forms of worship rather than only to the elements of worship. And I think that that's a mistake. Um, the earliest reformers who used the regulative principle of worship, and I would count uh, Zwingli among them, uh, Calvin among them, uh, certainly John Knox among them, maybe to a lesser extent uh, Martin Bootser, uh, they did not apply the regulative principle of worship across the board to circumstances, forms, and rubrics, as well as elements, they, they kind of understood it as applying to the acts of worship themselves, things that in themselves are sacred, uh, in sacris, rather than to these other things that surround uh, these acts of worship. I think that's important for our listeners. It, you know, we those of us who are in more... Uh, what we might call conservative, traditional, confessional churches, we can get very worked up about things. You know, somebody can say, oh, why are the, you know, the, the, the deacons ought to be using bags, not plates, or they ought to be using plates, not bags. And they can, we can get very opinionated about these things. And yet this distinction should at least give us pause in, in wrestling with, well, wait a minute, what, what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with an element? Are we dealing with a circumstance? Are we, you know, is this related to this question of forms and rubrics? And I think that helps our listeners uh, to at least kind of hit pause when something comes up as they're beginning to evaluate it. Let, let's let us let's. What about music, though? We we mentioned psalms and and uh, uh, that. How might this question of use of musical instruments even? Uh, how might we approach that? Right. Some people during the uh, I guess during the worship wars, right, it was said, oh, uh, the use of, of any instrument besides the piano and the organ is is wrong, and, and these become very heated debates, but wh- how should we be thinking about even instruments um, and, and use of music in worship? Maybe we can even expand it to choirs if we want, but any, any thoughts on this, gentlemen? Well, you're someone who's musically well-trained yeah, I have all kinds and of highly opinionated. <laughs> Why don't you? Why don't you have the opening salvo here about that? Well, the, yeah, and, and <laughs> I can I can throw some uh, some thoughts. You know, at, at least with it, with regard to instruments, you know, you you do hear the uh, um, the argument made that uh, that instruments um, were a hallmark of the old covenant. I, I think I could be wrong, but I thought even Calvin argued that 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 uh, instruments were used in temple worship. And that was designed to pass away uh, with the ending of that epoch of redemptive history. And so uh, I, I don't find that very compelling, uh, but I know um, others do as well. But it, the question is, you know, we have uh, our instruments a circumstance. I would, I would argue they are. But it seems that when we start getting into music styles, let's say, here's a, here's a hotly debated point, right? Should we just sing hymns? Can we sing praise choruses? Uh, you know, what songs can we use? With instruments... The question needs to come up, well, what instruments are being used and why? And how do those instruments support congregational song, right? I'm a, I've got my bass guitar in my closet, um, and I would love to get up and, and jam on my bass. Um, but I do need to ask the question, but is that going to help uh, congregational singing? Now you can, you know, there's bass on the organ pedals, so I'm, it might actually, Um or take, for example, a style of music. Well, I, I really like this style of, 
of pop funk uh, music, and it's fun to listen to in my car. But is the syncopated rhythms or the the, the chant like you know uh, melodies of of that is that going to enable the congregation to lift up their voices together? And, th- and there's plenty of songs, and frankly, even plenty of choruses, and I would argue there's plenty of hymns as well uh, that that use um, musical styles that don't actually unify the congregation and and don't help the congregation to sing together and perform that act. So, boy, those of you who wanted to hear me say organs only uh, or pianos only or guitars only, you know, you're not going to get that out of me. <laughs> but these are the kinds of things I think we need to be wrestling with. Well, it's an important question. Anyone who's worshipped in other lands, especially uh, hmm. non-first world, I don't know the correct language to use nowadays about poor countries but it changes every other day where so. where even electricity isn't uh, a naturalist in a natural uh, easily accessed kind of thing or where you find uh, gathered christians and the piano and the organ for example are not uh, indigenous instruments for them they're unfamiliar you find that they use instrumentation and even their music rhythms indigenous to their culture. The Christian community there develops a liturgical worship music that's suited for them. So I think this is something that will always be fluid. Uh, I don't think we've handled that fluidity within our own North American setting with much principled practice. I, I think it's a lot of copying. I experienced something at some church somewhere that was neato, and <laughs> can we do it too? I, I'm not overly rigid on this, except that the music we we offer be theologically responsible, have some depth and content that reflects Scripture and Christian experience, is authentic to that, and that it be decent and good order, has decorum. So I think there's genres of music that are so identified with aspects of our culture uh, of a sordid side, they're not naturally adaptable to Christian worship. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Uh, I agree with both you men. <laughs> wow. So, uh, the you know. <laughs> kumbaya moment here in our uh, roundtable. Yeah, Look at us. <laughs> So um, what do they say? Where two or three reform people are gathered, there are three or four denominations <laughs> in their midst, or something. No, never anyway. Where, where two or three reform <laughs> folks are gathered, they'll fight over worship. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, Doctor Beach had said earlier that the regulative principle of worship is not a magic wand. Yeah, and it is not a magic wand, and it is not the only principle of worship. Um, and it alone can't answer every question that we might have about worship. You know, uh, Dr. Beach just mentioned uh, things being done decently and in good order. That's sometimes called the eutoxia principle from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14. There's another biblical principle of worship that must regulate our services of worship. It informs our services of worship. The principle of edification is another one. You know, the principle of reverence and awe, and we can go on and on. Uh, there are many, many biblical principles of worship that uh, inform, shape, guide, regulate our services of worship. And all of those, all of those have to be brought to bear when it comes on the question of instrumentation, 
uh, and other circumstantial matters. And I do think that that is a circumstantial matter. And when it comes to matters of forms and rubrics and so on, everything has to come to bear. Our system of theology as a whole has to come to bear on our practice of worship, because in worship, we are expressing our theology, right? Uh, our theology is the foundation of our worship, and in worship, we give expression uh, to uh, our theology. So in my opinion, uh, you know, the act of worship that we're talking about here is congregational song, the singing of praises to God, congregational singing, and instruments can be used to facilitate that act of worship. So they would have a circumstantial role. They help the congregation to do that. And that you would want to have um, instruments that are suitable for that act of worship that are in keeping with you know, decorum, the eutoxia principle, that are in keeping with reverence and awe and so on, because that's the nature of worship and everything. Um, but you also uh, want to avoid you know, collapsing the distinction between worship and entertainment, mm. right? Uh, worship is not um, a form of entertainment. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. You know, I love entertainment. Most of folks do, uh, but it's not worship. I love musical uh, entertainment even. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and there are different forms of entertainment, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not all entertainment is lowbrow, you know, drums and guitars and whatever. There's highbrow entertainment too, you know, uh, a Bach concert would be a form of highbrow entertainment. So whether it's highbrow or lowbrow, you know, styles of worship or whatever, you know, categories we might use, we always want to avoid uh, uh, turning worship into a, a form of entertainment. And I think we can even, um, and, and that's a great distinction too, how different types of people find themselves entertained by different types of things. And if that's too simplistically applied then to well, this is most suitable for worship. It breaks down all over the place. Like I, I just heard Verdi's Macbeth this weekend at the Chicago Lyric Opera, and I could say, "Oh, well, that's the the best way. We should have we should have uh, Verdi style singing in church." Well, it, it, we have problems with that, you know. And I I think um, too, it's helpful in thinking about uh, just this suitability uh, as well. Is is we don't want to merely be pragmatic either when thinking about the suitability. And so, for example, someone may, may say, well, boy, we don't have an organ. And I, I think organs are wonderful, not simply because my wife's an organist and I, I'm some kind of an egghead, but there's the, the wind factor, the harmonic factor that can, that can help singing. Of course, it can also be played so loud that it covers the singing. Um, but, you know, I don't want to just merely go on to pragmatics because someone might say, well, I don't have an organist in my church, but I do have a banjo player. <laughs> I said, mm -hmm. well, yes. So pragmatically, you have an instrument, <laughs> although there's a decay to the sound. There's a uh, there's a, a par probably a problem with the projectableness of the instrument. That uh, right, you, you don't want to just you don't want to think about the movie Deliverance as a prelude to worship. <laughs> <laughs> ding ding ding. ding. Um, this, this is anecdotal, but uh, I. <laughs> You know, I was in a service of worship. This has been a few years ago uh, in a church that will remain unnamed. Um, but it, it was they were it was had a blended worship style. On the one hand, uh, you know, the clergy was uh, wearing you know ornate vestments. They were using high church liturgies, either you know Book of Common Prayer or something like it. And uh, right before they went to the Eucharist. You know, the the pastor was leading the congregation in prayer, you know, therefore with angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim, we sing. 
And then he paused, <laughs> and the band came in, <laughs> and they were going to play Holy, 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 you know, the Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, yeah. uh, making the transition to the Sanctus there. So he had this very high church liturgy moving right into the Sanctus, and then all of a sudden, the banjo player starts to play. The banjo. And the, I, I swear, <laughs> I swear to you. And it was so jarring, uh, you know, that disparity of um, high liturgy with banjo music. And uh, instantly, the first thing that came to mind when I heard the banjo was Kermit the Frog, Rainbow <laughs> Connection. And I was gone. There's just no more reference and all, you know, here. <laughs> <laughs> oh mercy <laughs> well if we can get our heads on straight and get back maybe maybe as we close things out i this can this is a, a big issue too but but even talking about instruments instruments themselves are a type of technology a hymn book is a type of technology we we joked earlier about reading songs off a screen that's a type of technology probably it's worth thinking about how how do we think through the use of technology in general uh, in the church? And and maybe a real pressing thing that people have in this pandemic season is this question of when churches were were told to shut down, and many churches uh, did out of a, a sense that they could still go about their ministry for a time, uh, shut down, right? I don't want to get into that whole debate, but but they put things on Zoom, and there's many people then asking, to what extent is, is use of live streaming or Zooming, and we might extend this to other technologies, but in what sense can that accommodate worship, and in what ways does it push back? Well, briefly, I had a, a number of United Reformed Church ministers specifically ask me this question, is Zoom worship worship? And um, I don't remember my exact articulated answer, but a summary of it was it's perhaps not normative worship, it's it's something out of the ordinary, and it's, so it's not normative. It's not to be continued. But it's under a, a set of circumstances the best we can offer to God with this technology. Without it, we wouldn't have corporate worship at all. So um, I argued that it was normative within a circumstance. Uh, understanding the circumstance isn't normative, and if as soon as we can deliver ourselves from it, we can, but praise him that we can at least come corporately together electronically. Because the bond is the bond of the spirit, first of all. Um, not to overly spiritualize, uh, but he is the bond. There's many people who've heard the word through radio broadcast or television broadcast sure. or even printed media. Who yeah, the print Lord is a technology, right? Uh, by which they the Lord has done powerful work. So you know, I don't think we can box in the spirit this way, but we do have principles laid out in Scripture not to forsake the gathering together, and we do need communion of saints, which is coming together corporately, and we also need the Lord's Supper. We need the sacraments, yeah. baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So uh, there too, how are you? really practicing communion the way it's intended in Scripture. So I, I argued that rather than call it not worship, that it's something not normative for worship, but by God's grace, given the technology we can make responsible use of. But I hedge because 
I think you already see in churches those who are only too comfortable now with Zoom sort of worship just to stay in their jammies on their sofa and watch church rather than participate in it. Glenn, how did you guys in uh, at Providence OPC, how, how did you deal? What, what, how did you guys think through that question when the shutdown happened? Or, or because you're in wild Texas, did you not have to shut down at all? <laughs> well, it may be wild Texas, but I'm in, I'm in Austin. Don't oh, forget. <laughs> that's right. Like you said, California so East. So. Yeah, that's the blue dot in the red field. Um, so whenever uh, the lockdown was imposed, you know, we, we did uh, move our services on to Zoom uh, temporarily, recognizing, as uh, Dr. Beach had said, but this is an irregularity um, and would not become normative or be you know, perpetuated. As soon as we were able to resume in-person services, we did. And at that point, we started live streaming our services, too, because we did have a few folks who were still, you know, not comfortable with getting out or whatever, whatever their circumstances uh, were, uh, but who would watch by live stream. But, you know, for example, uh, when we have communion, uh, we stop the live stream because we know that it's, that's something that the saints at home can't participate in and shouldn't even attempt to participate in, you know, communion from home. You can't, you can't do that. Uh, There's just really no substitute for, you know, the assembly of the congregation and the, you know, in-person ministry that we have to one another. You can't carry out ministry to one another, all of the one another commands, for example, in the new Testament without being together Um, But we do have to recognize that on this side of the eschaton, there will always be irregularities that we face when it comes to worship. And sometimes we have to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, just like the Israelites had to do. You know, Daniel prayed three times a day from his window facing Jerusalem. Well, that was not ideal. You know, ideal would have been in Jerusalem at the temple, but the temple had been destroyed. And here he is, you know, separated from the temple, and yet he's... He's still, you know, that's where his heart is. His heart was in, you know, in the worship of God in the temple. And that's why he faced Jerusalem and prayed three times a day. And that's what we do, too. You know, whenever we're in circumstances, and whether it be COVID or whatever circumstance we're in, maybe we're a shut-in or something like that. You know, we, we do the best that we can and recognize that there are always going to be irregularities in our worship on this side of the eschaton. And nevertheless, if we are worshiping in union with Christ by means of, you know, spirit uh, spiritual union through faith in Jesus Christ, then we are worshiping through the mediation of Christ, our high priest who intercedes for us in the heavenly temple. And our worship is always pleasing and acceptable to God if we are worshiping through uh, Jesus Christ, even with those irregularities, which we know shouldn't be there, and we try to eliminate as much as we can. I can hardly add anything better to that. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, we could talk a lot more on these topics, but hopefully our listeners at least have have been able to sit down with us and, uh, and, and listen to how we think through some of these issues. And uh, when we have questions, uh, these are some great categories then, uh, that we can now employ when thinking through the answer uh, to those, whether regarding uh, music or use of technology or, or other things like that. We're thankful for the work of Dr. Glenn Cleary. His ministry as a pastor in Pflugerville, Texas, 
and as an adjunct professor of liturgics here at MidAmerica. Very much appreciate his insight into worship, as you've heard over these past few episodes. We pause next week, stepping away from a series for a moment, as Reverend Andrew Compton introduces us to a fascinating read on social justice. Stay tuned for that. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.